The following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. All right. Good evening, everybody. Good to see you tonight. Good crowd out. And uh, if you're online, welcome. Thank you for joining us that way as well this evening. Young Mr. Collins is going to come and read to us Proverbs 16. After he's done, then the truth trackers will head out and we'll have our message this evening. Very good, Jackson. Proverbs 16. The preparations of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirits. Commit your works to the Lord and your thoughts will be established. The Lord has made for all himself. The Lord has made all for himself, yes, even the wicked for the day of doom. Everyone proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Though they join forces, none will go unpunished. In mercy and truth, atonement is provided for iniquity, and by the fear of the Lord one departs from evil. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies be at peace with him. Better is a little with righteousness than vast revenues without justice. A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Divination is on the lips of the king. His mouth must not transgress in judgment. Honest weights and scales are are the Lord's. All the weights in a bag are his work. It is an abomination for kings to commit wickedness, for a throne is established by righteousness. Righteous lips are the delight of kings, and they love him who speaks what is right. As messengers of death is the king's wrath, but a wise man will appease it. In the light of the king's face is life, and his favor is like a cloud of the latter rain. How much better to get wisdom than gold, and to get understanding is to be chosen rather than silver. The highway of the upright is is to depart from evil. He who keeps his way per, preserves his soul. Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Better to be of a humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. He who heeds the word wisely will find good, and whoever trusts in the Lord, happy is he. The wise in heart will be called prudent, and the sweetness of the lips increases learning. Understanding is a wellspring of life to him who has it, but the correction of fools is folly. The heart of the wise teaches his mouth and adds learning to his lips. Pleasant words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the bones. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. The person who labors labors for himself, for the hungry mouth drives him on. An ungodly man digs up evil, and it is on his lips like a burning fire. A perverse man sows strife, and a whisperer separates the best of friends. A violent man entices his neighbor and leads him in a way that is not good. He winks his eye to devise perverse things. He purses his lips and brings about evil. The silver-haired head is a crown of glory if it is found in the way of the righteous. He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. The lot is cast into the lap, but it 
that every decision is from the Lord. All right, very good. We're going to invite the youngsters to go out to their class. Hope you've got your verses memorized. There you go. No hesitation there, huh? (laughs) Excited they are. We're going to invite uh, one moment Jansen to come and share the Word with us. And uh, I think most of us have a copy of the uh, handout that I've been giving to you, which is questions about the passage that Jansen's going to be speaking on. And I thought what I would do is uh, provide that study sheet for you so you follow along with his message and you fill in what those answers are supposed to be. He's going to give them to you along the way. Uh, He might not, uh, well, how can I say? He might disguise them a little bit under different words, but that means you've got to be paying attention, right? So that's our goal. And uh, so Jansen, come along. I think this is going to be all right. We'll see if that works for you. Okay, very good. If you'll turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Galatians chapter 5. Many of you have been following along with us in this study as we've covered uh, now the first five chapters of Galatians with one remaining. And uh, the last few times we've been covering uh, one portion of Galatians chapter 5 beginning in verse 16 all the way through verse 23 which all uh, speaks specifically to the war, the battle that's taking place between the flesh and the spirit, something that is very experiential for us. We know very well, unfortunately, but we do know it. It is real. And so, therefore, we're going to continue on the remainder of this whole uh, context in verses 24 through 26 this evening. And that is where we'll be this evening, Galatians chapter 4. Verses 24 through 26. But let's begin first uh, asking for the Lord's strength for this evening. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time now that we can be in your word. Lord, may it be fruitful in a manner that exalts the name of Christ. And Lord, also edifies us this evening. Lord, may our hearts be attuned to what you desire us to understand and hear and, and then follow and, and believe and, and do. Lord, we, uh, we thank you for uh, the ministry that we have here and the opportunity of fellowship that we can have uh, such a rich opportunity as this to be together, to pray, to sing, and to, and to read your word. Lord, we thank you for the youngsters like those who are in truth trackers who pray for them as they memorize the word. May that abound in their hearts and lives, Lord, so that they come to a knowledge of Christ and believe in you. Lord, we thank you for the example of Jackson and his willingness to read and and share the word and the rich truths of Proverbs for a young man like himself. And we thank you for that. Lord, bless now this evening and this time in your name. Amen. I think it's best if I actually just read verses 16 through 26. This will help us understand the context which we're in for those who haven't perhaps been here on a Wednesday evening when we've been studying through here. And for the sake of those who have, again, we don't want to lose the forest and the trees, understanding uh, the theme which is being presented here. So let me read for you now uh, verses beginning in verse 16, where Paul writes to the Galatians saying, I say then walk in the spirit 
and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For this flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now, verse 19, the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. In verse 22, Paul writes, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Verse 25, if we live in the Spirit, let us walk, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited provoking one another, envying one another. Now, in verses 24 through 26, Paul is going to explain to the Galatians, the believer's relationship to the flesh and the spirit. And in turn, we're going to learn from this, and the Galatians were being taught that the believer can walk in the spirit. We can have confidence that we can walk in the spirit and obey the word of God because of uh, what has happened in our life. There is a spiritual battle that is being waged between the sinful nature of the Christian and the Holy Spirit of God. And we saw that here in verses 16 through 19. There is indeed a battle. And when the flesh succeeds, it produces behavior that is only fit for unbelievers. Look at verses 19 through 21 to see that kind of behavior, that the conduct of those who are not walking in the spirit. The warning in verse 21 is that those who practice such behaviors will not inherit the kingdom of God. That is to say, they are not believers or they never were true believers. We see this in verse 21. Those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. To not inherit the kingdom of God means to not be saved, to not enjoy the inheritance that comes through Christ. On the other hand, we see that when the Spirit of God wins in this battle, he produces behavior and character that is fit for believers as it reveals an internal transformation. And we see this in verses 22 and 23. What is the fruit produced by the Spirit in a believer? It is love, joy, peace, and continuing on as we very well know these fruits, this fruit of the Spirit. Such uh, behavior is universally recognized as lawful and positive. That's what Paul says in verse, the end of verse 23. It says, against such, that is, these characteristics, there is no law. Of course, it's accepted, it's lawful, it's positive, it's good behavior. And now in verses 24 through 26, Paul writes a final word concerning this flesh versus the spirit battle 
that is taking place in the Christian's life, describing the believer's relationship to the flesh and the spirit. And as we said a moment ago, it is for the purpose of teaching the believer that they indeed can walk in the spirit. They are empowered to do so. Why? Well, that's what we're going to learn this evening. Looking at the beginning of verse 24, Paul writes, after writing this list that is the fruit produced by the Spirit, he says, And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh. Have crucified the flesh. Those who are Christ's. The first question that perhaps I think is on your list here on your notes or handout is the question, who are those who are Christ? We need to answer this in order to understand the rest of the context and the, and, and the, and the reasoning and the assertions made here. Who are those who are Christ's? Well, can I say, don't overthink the meaning of this phrase too much. Paul is referring to anyone who is a born-again believer. Those who are born again are Christ's. You immediately belong to Christ when you put your faith and trust in Christ. Can we say there are only two categories of people in the world, those who are Christ's and those who are not? Therefore, if you're Christ's, you are a believer. You are saved. You are his. Romans chapter 8, verse 9. Look with me just for a moment at 1 Corinthians 5, 23, though. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we can affirm this truth. He, Paul writes here to the Corinthians. I, I think I got this wrong here. It's not 1 Corinthians. I, let me check 2nd. Is it 2nd, John? Thank you. John is my fact checker tonight. 2 Corinthians 5, 23. That can't be right either. I've done it this evening. Yeah. I've gotten us in a quandary. Let me come back to this as I, my memory jogs, okay? Will you forgive me this moment as I do that? In any case, Paul is affirming both in this text and the, and the Corinthians text, which it's not coming to mind at this moment, that uh, anyone who is a born-again believer is Christ. There is a, a relationship, a possession that's established. You are his. You belong to Christ. Uh, that's that's the, the past of the other one I referenced. That's not the one I was going to turn to. But for the sake of mentioning it, and that I already did, let me read that for you. You don't have to turn there. You can stay in Galatians if you'd like. But listen as I read. Paul writes, In Romans chapter 8, verse 9, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. Only those who possess the Spirit of God are his, and the only way to possess the Spirit of God is to be indwelt by him by saving faith and trust in Christ alone. So who are Christ? It is born-again believers. It is all those who have believed in Christ. So then, 
recognizing that, Paul continues on writing, and those who are Christ, back in Galatians chapter 5, verse 24, and those who are Christ have crucified the flesh. The second question we have to ask ourselves this evening is, what does it mean to have crucified the flesh? We know who we're talking about when we say those who are Christ, but what does it mean to have crucified the flesh? Well, let me begin by restating the fact that all persons who belong to Christ by faith in him and his perfect saving work have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So if you are Christ, that means you belong to him. And this verse uh, asserts that you have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now, notice with me for a moment that the verb is in the active voice. Paul says here, and those who are Christ have crucified the flesh. Whereas if we look in other cases... Uh, where this idea of crucify or crucified, they're in, uh, in the passive voice. Look, look with me at Galatians chapter 2. Paul has already written about this idea of being crucified. But notice in verse 20 of chapter 2, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ <clears throat> lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Or look with me, uh, turn further on past Galatians chapter 5 to Galatians chapter 6. Look at verse 15. Paul writes, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. So hold on to that, that text for a moment. Tuck that away, as we, and we're going to come back to that in a second. But also we can look at other texts, but not just this moment, at Romans chapter 6, uh, verse 6, and chapter 2, verse 11. All of these, all of these passages uh, that have the idea of, of uh, either crucified or crucified or becoming a new creation, all are used in the passive uh, sense or passive voice, I should say. Whereas in Galatians chapter 5, verse 24, Paul says, those who are Christ have active, crucified the flesh. So what, what is the importance of this? Why do I say all this? Well, look back at the subject of that verb. What is the subject? Back in Galatians chapter 5, verse 24. What is the subject of that verb or verb phrase, have crucified the flesh? What is it? Those. Galatians chapter 5, verse 24. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh. The subject of have crucified or is those. It's, it's those who are Christ, they are the ones that have crucified the flesh. So what does this teach us then? This means that those who are Christ, that is, 
as we've already explained, believers, born-again believers, those who are Christ's are actively involved in this act of crucifying or having crucified the flesh. In all other cases uh, where this idea, as we said just a moment ago about being crucified, all these other cases that relate to this in a figurative sense uh, always have to do with something that has been done by God to the believer. Remember back to Galatians 2:20, like we just read, read a moment ago, read a moment ago when he says, "I have been crucified." But here Paul says, "Those that is believers, they have done the crucifying. They have been crucified. Those who are Christ have crucified the flesh. They are actively involved in this act. They are participating in this. How so? Well, notice. Uh, as well, just for a moment, that not only is this verb in the active tense, voice, I should say, but it's also past tense. Those who are Christ have crucified the flesh. It is a definite action that has taken place in the past by every believer. So we may consider this for a moment and ask ourselves, does this mean that in some way or another that every believer was somehow crucified when Christ was, as if they themselves were there being crucified along with Christ? Well, it doesn't quite make sense uh, to locate this temporarily at the cross. Why? Well, because when Jesus died, I didn't exist at that time. I was not there. Nor uh, was my flesh even existent at that time. This verse seems instead to make a statement that when I was converted, that is saved, then I crucified, at that point I crucified the flesh. Again, remember as we said, this is an active uh, voice verb, meaning the believer is the one who has done this. They are an active participant in this act of crucifying the flesh. Okay, so with that established, let's continue to look at this verse, verse 24. And we need to understand something, something important here. We need to understand what does it mean to have crucified? What, is, what does it mean to crucify the flesh? The difficulty at this point is to understand this idea of crucified as it relates to the flesh. Indeed, the old self or old man is already crucified, right? Do we believe that? Romans chapter 6, verse 6. Let me read that for a moment. Just You can turn with me there if you'd like. But to affirm this truth, let me read it for you. Let me begin back in verse 5. Paul writes in Romans chapter 6, verse 5, For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, or we could say believing this, having understood this, that our old man was crucified with him, 
that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. So we believe this, I assume. That's what Paul is saying to the Romans. Knowing this, on this basis, believing this, that our old man, that is uh, the old nature, the old self, has been crucified with him. It's been done away with. The idea behind crucified is to put to death. It's being utterly destroyed. The old man is completely done away with. We are a new creation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 17. Let me read that for a moment. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll see if I can get this right. Going back to the Corinthians here. Second Corinthians chapter 5, let me begin in verse 16. Paul writes here, Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that is, as we said, those who are Christ, right? To be in Christ means that you are his, you belong to him, you are saved individual If that is the case, then what does verse 17 say? He is a new creation, right? Old things, what are the old things? The flesh, the old man, the old man, the old self have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So we believe, based on these texts and the rest of Scripture, that the old man, the old self, has been completely done away with. It's been eradicated, destroyed. That is something that takes place at the moment of our salvation. Well then, this means uh, that... There is something else to this text here, going back to Galatians chapter 5, verse 24, that still needs to be explained. Because if we believe that the old man, the old self, has been completely done away with, eradicated, destroyed, put to death, then why, why do we still have this, this fleshly battle that takes place? Why do we still have this battle of the flesh and the spirit? Might we say there perhaps is actually a, a distinction between the old man, which Romans chapter 6 talks about, and 2 Corinthians 5.17, which alludes to that idea, and the, the flesh that Paul is talking specifically about here in verse 24. What do I mean by this? Well, let's, let's tease this out for a second. What is the flesh then here? The, if uh, Paul says that those who are Christ have crucified the flesh... What is the flesh? We already said that there's a battle ongoing between the flesh and the spirit after this person is saved. So it's not as if the flesh in that sense has completely been eradicated, done away with. But we know that the old man himself has been, right? So how do we understand this? We see uh, in verses 19 through 21 that the flesh tries to produce works uh, 
that are not uh, the nature of the new man, right? Correct? The new, the new man uh, does not produce those kind of things. Uh, at least uh, that is not the direction in which it steers him. It steers him. The Spirit guides him to, direct, to produce behavior and conduct like that in verses 22 and 23. So, when uh, Paul says, uh, those who are Christ have crucified the flesh, uh, what is this flesh? What does flesh mean? Perhaps uh, we can think of the flesh in relationship, in relationship to what characterizes the flesh. What characterizes the flesh? Well, look at the end of verse 24. Have crucified the flesh, what? With its passions and desires. So we're getting at the idea of here, idea here of what, how do we understand the flesh in this context? And how has the believer crucified the flesh? And I think we, it's helpful to understand, uh, again, as I just said, the relationship of the flesh to what characterizes the flesh. And Paul explains what characterizes it at the end of verse 25, 24. Excuse me. He says, with its passions and desires. What are these passions and desires? Well, the passions and desires are the internal and external expressions of the flesh. In relationship to the flesh, it points back to the works of the flesh, like we just mentioned in verses 19 through 21. The passions and the desires are those internal and external expressions of the flesh at work. So then, at what point did the believer crucify the flesh with its passions and desires? As the verse says, we have done. Well, can I propose to you that this action by the believer took place when he or she made the decision to turn from their sin, that is the flesh as we've described it, and follow Christ. We often call this someone's conversion, right? And when you understand the, the idea behind the, the meaning of conversion, what is the root if we, if we kind of bring it down? Convert, right? You are converting from one thing or one way, one dominion to another. You are turning from the sin, from sin, from the flesh, and you are turning to Christ to follow after him. A key aspect of someone's conversion is a conscious decision to turn away from sin. We call this repentance, right? At the point of our salvation, we are, we are sick. We're tired of the flesh and the products of it. That is eternal death and separation from God and its passions and desires as it produces unrighteousness within us and externally as well. It's as if we've said, I want to be done with it, with that, with the flesh. I'm tired of it. I'm sick of it. I want to follow after Christ. There was a definite turning away from sin that should be so thorough in its intent 
that it can be said that I nailed, so to speak, or figuratively, I nailed my fleshly desires onto the cross of Christ because I wanted to be rid of them for good. In other words, when we believe and we are converted and we turn to Christ, we are renouncing our fellowship with the flesh. We should realize that there was a definitive turning away from that sin and towards God, which we call our, our conversion. But we also realize that in the life of the Christian, that repentance is necessary continuously, even on a daily basis at some points. Our flesh, we have crucified once, right? As Galatians chapter 5, verse 24 says, it's a past thing that's happened. But this result has ongoing implications, continual confession of our sin and, and turning from, uh, from our sin and following after, after God. So what is this whole idea of having crucified the flesh? How and which way are we actively involved in this crucifixion? It is the idea or it is the determination, can we say, to turn away from flesh at our conversion, saying, I no longer want to live like this. I no longer want to have fellowship with this. I am turning to Christ. I am being delivered from this dominion, from this from this uh, relationship to another. Pastor lately has been using that illustration of putting a stake down. This is who I was, but this is who I, de- I am declaring I am in Christ today. I have crucified the flesh. Of course, even that we know is by the enabling power of God. But we have made a conscience decision. It's a will, a desire to turn away and to say, this is who I am in Christ. I am no longer under the power of sin in the flesh. I am Christ and I am going to live in such a manner as being related and belonging to my Savior. So then Paul continues on in verse 25. Look with me at Galatians chapter 5, verse 25. He says, If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let's consider for a moment, what is the logical relationship between this if-then statement in verse 25? That's exactly what it is, an if-then statement. You might not explicitly have written out then in verse 25, but that's, uh, we could say a prefix of uh, of the second clause there. If we live in the Spirit, then, could be implied, let us walk in the Spirit. The then part is the present tense of to walk. It is an exhortation or a command. Perhaps, and I, I looked at a few different translations, and I, I couldn't find, at least in the translations that I had, any other different uh, translation than what's written here. But the idea of let us uh, maybe sometimes comes across too softly, as if it's a suggestion or oversimplified of, you know, perhaps we consider this. 
that's not what this is. This is an imperative. It's a command. It's an exhortation. If we live in the spirit, then walk in the spirit. This is just what was told us in verse 16. Look back there for a moment. Paul wrote there, I say then, walk in the Spirit. It's a command. It's an imperative. And it's an exhortation. And implied in that is, if we walk in the Spirit, you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Well, let's also consider for a moment, what does it mean to live in the Spirit versus walk in the Spirit? Are the two the same? Are they a synonymous idea? Paul doesn't seem to be presenting it that way, does he, in the text? No. The if-then statement implies that, that it's, there's a difference there. There's a, uh, a difference of, of the idea and the meaning of these two, uh, these two matters. Let's first consider what does it mean to live in the Spirit. What does it mean to live in the Spirit? Well, I think we've already alluded to this earlier. If you live in the Spirit, that means that you have the Spirit of God dwelling within you. You are indwelt by the Spirit of God. Who? There's only one person or one kind of person that's indwelt by God's Spirit. Who is that? Believers, the born-again believer. To live in the Spirit, maybe we could turn this little phrase around. To live in the Spirit means the Spirit lives in you. Interesting, isn't it? To live in the Spirit means that the Spirit lives in you. Paul kind of alludes to this whole truth earlier on in chapter 3, verse uh, verse 3. He says there to the Galatians, Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit? Meaning, having, having been born again, Having the Spirit of God indwell you, he then says, Are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Paul's saying here in verse 3, If you believe, if you have believed, and maybe we could say for sake of argument here, or I assume that you have believed this way, that you, that you are born again by the Spirit, by the power of the Spirit, having been regenerated, having been indwelt by the Spirit, then are you going on in your Christian life to be sanctified, perfected by the flesh? No. You have the Spirit of God living in you, and he is the one that is empowering you and sanctifying you by his work to walk in holiness and righteousness. So then, looking back at Galatians chapter 5, verse 25, we see that there's a difference here, obviously, between living in the Spirit and walking in the Spirit. Maybe we can say it this way. Any believer is obviously living in the Spirit. A true born-again believer is living in the Spirit, meaning they have the Spirit of God within them. But it doesn't mean that every single moment, every believer is walking in the Spirit. There's a difference here. To walk means to conduct oneself in an orderly fashion, to follow, to hold on to, to agree with, to, uh, to follow with, or be guided by. This word is used in Acts 21, 24, and uh, 
in Romans 4.12 and Philippians 3.16. There is always a rule or metric by which one walks in such an orderly way. And as a believer, we have to keep on doing this. Think back for a moment to verse 24. Those who are Christ have crucified the flesh. They were actively involved. It was a thing that was done in the past. Remember, they pulled up their stake. They declared that they are following Christ. But the act of walking in the spirit is a continuous thing. It is something that is to be continued with in the life of the believer. We are called as believers to walk in an orderly fashion, to follow after, to agree with, and to be guided by the Spirit of God. That is how we walk in the Spirit. How do we follow the Spirit of God? The main tangible way is to know and follow the Bible. And by the Spirit's power, he enables us to understand it, to believe it, to follow after it, right? To apply it. What it says, we do. Know uh, that it is your decision-making to follow after the Word, what the Word teaches, and to do it. It is our decision, we have to make the active decision to allow ourselves to be permeated with Scripture and to follow after and obey its commands. Therefore, we see then that uh, having crucified the flesh as we have, we are still making a conscious decision then to walk in the Spirit. It's not as if we've, we've... Take it up our stake, put it here, and the rest is just willy-nilly. <laughs> we continue on, pressing on, enabled by the Spirit to walk in the Spirit and to follow after His direction. So then, we see then there is a distinction of, of living in the Spirit and also walking in the Spirit. The one doesn't imply the other. The only thing that it implies is that if you're walking in the Spirit, that means, that means you have the Spirit of God dwelling in you. Well then, Paul continues on. After this, he says in verse 26, Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Here we see that same phrase, let us not become conceited. Again, this isn't a suggestion, as if it's something to be considered. It is an imperative. It's a command, an exhortation. If you live in the Spirit, that means, again, as we said, if you, if you are indwelt by the Spirit, walk in the Spirit, then also don't, then don't become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. To be conceited is to be filled with pride. Provoking is an external manifestation of that pride that that person has within them. Provoking others. Envying one another is an internal expression that may not be as visible as someone who's provoking, 
but it is just as destructive in every manner to the person who is envying. Therefore, in light of what Paul said in verse 24 and 25, to be conceited or prideful, puffed up with pride, and therefore provoking one another and envying one another, those are all things that are opposite of staying in step, or as, we, as the verse says, walking in the Spirit. What does this mean to us? Well, this alludes back to the works of the flesh listed in verses 19 through 21. Those who are provoking one another, envying one another, are manifesting a pride within them that is driving their desires, driving their, their, their uh, emotions, driving their actions, and it is a manifesta- manifestation of the desires of their heart, the true desires of their heart. Those desires are related to the flesh, as we said earlier. So what does this then suppose then, or propose? The idea that if this is the practice of your life, you are not manifesting true salvation, true belief in Christ. On the other hand, if if you do profess Christ and you are living in the Spirit, then don't allow, allow these things to manifest themselves in your life. Don't allow the flesh to have uh, to succeed. Don't be prideful. Don't be provoking one another, envying, envying one another. But walk in the Spirit as the believer is called to do. The Spirit's war against the flesh begins at conversion, as we said. When Christians have made that decision to crucify the flesh, that is, turn away from it and earnestly desire its defeat, And this battle against the flesh that takes place continues. But our text here reveals that the believer can, in fact, walk in the Spirit, having triumph over the flesh. Why? Because of what these verses have told us. We have crucified the flesh. We are no longer walking in that dominion. We are walking as a new creation. Therefore, we do have the power by the Spirit of God who dwells in us, to walk in an orderly fashion. Not practice such things as spoken about and written about in verses 19 through 21. As we close this evening, uh, perhaps uh, as we alluded to in, in lessons past, as we've talked about verses 20 through 22 through 23, Uh, Consider the fruit of the Spirit. Are these things evident in your life? They are things produced by the Spirit of God in those who are walking in the Spirit. We may feel at times where one thing or another here that's listed in verse 22 or 23 is, is a, a measure or our portion. <laughs> We're manifesting one or the other. But it is the desire of God, as we said before, that all these things be produced by the Spirit in us. And that is our call 
as a believer, as we walk in the spirit. Let's pray as we close this evening. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time. Lord, we pray that uh, your word was what was understood. Lord, we understand that uh, we are only vessels in your hand. And Lord, we understand that at the same time, uh, your spirit within us enables us to have understanding illumines our minds and our hearts to understand and then apply your word. And in doing so, uh, we then display that we are walking in the Spirit. Help us in that way, Lord. Help us remember that we can walk in the Spirit. We, we have that capability because of, of uh, that decision, aided by God's Spirit to turn from the flesh and to walk in the, in the Spirit, to believe in Christ so that we are transformed into his likeness. The old man has been eradicated, the new man, the new creation is ours fully. And we thank you for that. Help us, Lord, now as we go, give us safety, and uh, may your name be exalted on our lips and through our actions. We pray this in your name. Amen.